0: This is Hell.
1: Welcome to Hell. This is Lindsay, recording and live streaming at the same time. I'm playing the soundboard and I'm rocking the microphone at the same time. Which is Thursday, April 21st, 2022, 10 a.m. Chicago time. If you're tuning in this April 21st live stream, I hope you all had a good 420. I know I did. And I know I also applied for this job mostly because I heard Chuck call it bong hitting journalism one time. (laughs) So speaking of Chuck, he is still recuperating with stomach problems, but I can assure you that all your good vibes are helping. Because he is planning on starting up some Patreon podcasts again and hoping to be back possibly sometime next month uh, with live shows. But until then, we're going to be playing back some more interviews from the past. Uh, There are a lot of them. So we've got plenty to fill up these next few weeks. And today, I'm also going to be reading the question from Hal, which is, what would you ban from schools? Let me check this and make sure I re- read that correctly. What are you trying to ban from schools? So if you're listening and you want to get your uh, answer in, you still got about 40 minutes, you can head on over to the Facebook page or the Twitter page. So we also have today a brand new moment of truth with Jeff Dorshan. Jeff is going to be putting on his tragic comedy mask, and we look forward to connecting you with Jeff later. Uh, But speaking of 420, uh, it was also the start of Taurus season, and I'm about to introduce our past guests, who is not here with us today but they were here with us 2 years ago and or 3 years ago 2019 <laughs> uh March 9th 2019 we had Adrian Marie Brown she's a Virgo not a Taurus but they are both earth signs and Adrian Marie Brown can sing which I think is a Taurus thing you were just if you were here with this live stream you were just listening to some of Adrian Marie Brown's music. And if you're familiar with Adrian Marie Brown, you might be confused because they're really ro- well known as the author of the legendary book, Emergent Strategy, uh, Social Justice Theory, uh, really good stuff. And in 2019, Adrian Marie Brown talked to our host, Chuck Mertz, about their book from 2019, uh, Pleasure Activism. Pleasure Activism and uh, the politics of feeling good. So I think that that's always a good topic to talk about. Um, And I kind of wanted to play a little bit of... Adrienne Marie Brown's music. I'm not sure if that's going to make it through the radio waves. Uh, We can talk about that later. Um, There's another clip that we could edit in here, but I was really enjoying Adrienne Marie Brown's album, which came out in 2021 called The Sabbatical Suite. So I'm kind of guessing she... Took a sabbatical and she recorded this album. Um, I read on her Wikipedia page that um, they studied voice in college too, not just, you know, social theory. So I love a multifaceted artist. Uh, I think that is part of the emergent strategy, if you're familiar. So, anyways, I wanted to play here this song from the sabbatical suite called A Story for Alexis.
2: got herself into a canoe and she started to row and row and row and she rowed all day and she didn't get to the island so she came back and she rowed all day the next day and she couldn't get there so she came back and on the third morning she was looking out and her grandmother came and walked up next to her she said you know sometimes you can't go to a thing You have to let a thing come to you and so on the third day she set out in her rowboat and she started rowing but instead of bringing her attention to the island she brought her attention to the pleasure of pulling herself through the water feeling the oars feeling the muscles in her back feeling the sun on the top of her head and the mist the way it came up off the water touched her body all over Occasionally she would look up and she would think about how pleasing it would be to be on the island, not moving towards it, but really letting her pleasure come to her. And then before she knew it, her boat bumped up against the shore, and there she was at the island. She pulled her boat up onto the island shore, and she realized that mostly it was just one tree. Surrounded by a bunch of dirt. And walking to the edge of that dirt and looking down, she saw that there was an amazing amount of lights below her. Lights that didn't come from the sun. Lights that were not flickers of the sun on the water. Lights that were wholly their own. Now she knew what her next adventure would be. I love you, Alexis.
1: tuning in to this is hell i'm lindsay and i was just playing our upcoming past guest adrian marie brown off of her album or ep called the sabbatical suite and that sorry the sabbatical suite and that song was called a story for alexis i really liked it i'm really into the spoken word thing but Adrian really has a beautiful voice. You should check out the whole album. Um, So anyways, that brings me to introducing the podcast or the radio show or the live stream that um, was recorded three years ago in 2019 called You Have to Be Able to Feel on the Power of Pleasure Activism. So if you were listening closely to that song, I... There was, you know, one part of the song really stuck out, and it was probably the lyric, she brought her attention to the pleasure of pulling herself through the water. So, we are about to have an interview with Adrienne Marie Brown, author of *Emergent Strategies. If you haven't read this book or finished it, fret not, because there's a clip on YouTube where Adrienne Marie Brown gives us all we need to know, and I'm going to play it right now.
3: If you just read those two pages, or you can look at page 15, page 42, and on page 50. If you just read those two pages, or you can look at page 15, page 15 also basically has the entire thesis, everything about the book is right there. So this Octavia Butler quote, all successful life is adaptable, opportunistic, tenacious, interconnected, and fecund. Understand this, use it, shape God. So from that, I would say emergent strategy is learning how to be fractal, small scale reflects the large scale, how to be adaptive in right relationship to change, but also with intention. Because if you just change all the time, you're just changing all the time, you're just a mess, you're just a leaf blown in the wind. But changing with an idea of like, oh, I'm a bird, I'm trying to get to Mexico for my migration, a storm came, how do I still get myself to Mexico? Then nonlinear and iterative, resilient, being in a practice of transformative justice, which I think we are just, Beginning to understand what transformative justice is or could be for us as a species, and then interdependent and decentralized, and always creating more possibilities. One of my favorite examples right now from the nat- you know sort of the world of nature has been in this flooding that's been happening with the hurricanes. Watching how ants have come together to survive um, and they form, they basically create a foundation of their own bodies, like a bottom layer of their own bodies that then other ants climb on top of and climb on top of until they create this floating mound that then is able to make sure that the majority of them survive until they come across something that is a higher ground. Right now we are drowning in the overwhelm of this political moment and the overwhelm of hard decisions. How do we reach out and hold on to each other Knowing that holding onto each other makes us a more stable body that can actually float and not pushing each other down, not you know pushing each other under. Um, one of my favorite examples in the human world is actually the work of Black Lives Matter and the movement for black lives and feeling like this was emergent. It's not like someone sat down at a table and was like, I've got it all figured out. I know how we're gonna catalyze black people into their liberation fight and taking direct action right now. That's not what happened there was just a heartbreak. It really, to me, it grows out of a heartbreak. Like if you look at the original post that Alicia put, it was like, my heart is broken and our lives matter. And that that heartbreak was so catalyzed that people were like, yeah, how do we organize ourselves around what we long for and we believe in this moment when everything is telling us we don't matter, but we, we know we do, how do we move that? And that so many people answered that call and that they have really tried to hold like, oh, what does decentralization look like? How do we keep adapting to changing conditions? Things that organically emerge from a real desire and a real longing, those are the ones that catalyze the most other people. They're super compelling. Like when you see someone feeling a real emotion, that's what you want to move towards and and be like, I want to be a part of this. It's not just getting me to sign my name on a petition. It's not just getting me to be a number in the street. You actually want me to care about my own life and my children's life. Yeah, I'm down for that. One thing I say in here several times is what you pay attention to grows. So this administration wants us to put all of our attention on them, and I would rather starve them of all of that attention to put all of it on the amazing work that's happening here in Detroit, or in Jackson, in the Bay, or in all these other places, St. Louis, where people are like, we are figuring it out, we're surviving, Um, and that's what I'm gonna keep doing.
2: This is
0: Hell. There is political power in our passions and our desire for pleasure. We can actually feel good about ourselves and the world we live in by engaging in what our next guest calls pleasure activism. Yes, activism can feel good, and if political activism can actually give you pleasure, then guess what people will actually want to do more? Here to explain social justice facilitator focused on black liberation, emergent strategist, doula, healer, anti-extraordinaire, and political activist Adrian Marie Brown, author of Pleasure Activism: The Politics of Feeling Good. Welcome to This Is Hell, Adrian. Thank you.
4: Thanks for having me,
0: Chuck. It's great to have you on the show. Adrian is also author of Emergent Strategy: Shaping Change Changing Worlds, and co-author of 2015's Octavia's Brood, science fiction from social justice movements, an anthology of sci-fi written by organizers and visionaries. You can find out more about Octavio's Brood at OctaviasBrood.com. OctaviasBrood.com. So let's start with the really obvious question. What is pleasure activism?
4: (laughs) Great. I think it breaks down in basically two ways. One is reclaiming our God-given, nature-given birthright of pleasure, that actually all of us are wired for pleasure, and it's only oppression and colonization that have made us believe otherwise. And then the second piece is actually leaning into the things that give us pleasure and, and thinking about how we bring our whole analysis into those things so that they're not compromising or not numbing us, but actually helping us feel more satisfied and content and joyful in our lives.
0: How does colonization undermine pleasure? And what do you mean by when you're talking about colonization? You're not just talking about the history of colonialism. You're talking about something larger than that.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that there's the colonialism that, you know, got us into the U.S. and have a Western um, control over most resources in the world. But then I think there's also the colonization, of white supremacy over our imaginations and over our sense of self. There's the colonization of patriarchy over our sense of equality. There's the colonization of heteronormativity. There are ways that um, our sense of self and our ability to create an identity that is about being empowered and fully alive and fully awakened, that that gets taken from us in the process of oppression. Um, You know, as a black woman, for instance, in this country, The way that I came in and the way my ancestors, my lineage, comes into this country is as three-fifths of a person able to be raped, able to be bred, able to be used as a body in any way that a white slave owner wanted. That's the legacy of of the bodies that look like mine in this country. And what I'm talking about is then how do we reclaim from that a wholeness, a whole self, and actually be able to have the right to pleasure And Audre Lorde is one of the fundamental voices in this text. I include her essay, The Uses of the Erotic, as a foundational text in the book. And one of the things she talks about is once we have actually experienced that complete aliveness, that total erotic awakening, it becomes impossible to settle for suffering.
0: You write that pleasure activism is the work we do to reclaim our whole happy and satisfiable selves from the impacts, delusions, and limitations of oppression and or supremacy. Does pleasure activism then prioritize the pursuit of happiness? Does it make social happiness its goal? And is it more about an activist's individual pleasure? I guess that's three different questions. Let's just start with does, does, (laughs) does pleasure activism prioritize the pursuit of happiness? So it doesn't
4: prioritize the pursuit of it. It almost prioritizes relaxing into it, relaxing into the idea that, We get to be content that that's not something we should have to be fighting for, that we actually get to experience this joy. And it says that suffering is not the total purpose of our lives here. It shouldn't be the way that we bond with each other, that we come together, that we're only in community because of how horrific our lives are. It's saying let's come together because we can bring each other joy and we can bring each other pleasure and contentment. How do we organize our communities and our lives around that? And how do we make sure those things that bring us contentment are not um, things that then cause a great harm? So there's a big framework in the book of harm reduction, which is something that I was taught and I'm so grateful that I was taught. But it's like, how do we reduce the harms of those things that bring us pleasure and acknowledge that we live in a world that is actually really difficult, right? <laughs> so there's a lot of reasons why people turn to sex, turn to drugs, turn to escape, and it's Sort of saying, okay, how do we acknowledge that there's all these reasons that drive people to that, that we live in a, in a, um, a harsh world and an unequal world? And then how from that place do we still get to claim? I, I have the right to be here. I have the right to feel good, and I don't want to cause myself harm while I'm doing that. I don't want to cause others harm. So much of this, I think, is actually about getting in right relationship with each other and right relationship with this planet we live on.
0: So is this about inner individual pleasure? How can you have collective pleasure?
4: Mm. That's great. That's a great question. I mean, that's one of the things I'm trying to explore throughout the book. There's a lineage of this book that is um, that goes back to Octavia Butler, who is a black science fiction writer who has heavily influenced everything I've done. And she wrote science fiction in which, um, in story after story, the answer most of the problems was, in some way, community, and it was finding those places in community where you felt like you could be whole and you felt safe to be your your entire self, that you weren't compromising some aspect of yourself in order to be a part of the community, and I actually think the only way that we'll get to experience abundance and pleasure and, and collective contentment on this planet is if we start to orient ourselves towards collective pleasures, I think if we orient towards individual pleasure, we go down this path that takes us towards individual excess and individual greed. And I think a lot of what we understand as the way that capitalism works in this country is rooted in this idea that we're individuals, that we're not interdependent and interconnected on this planet. And so some people take too much and overindulge, and then others are left with not enough. So, you know, one of the things I often talk about is, like, I love a hot tub. I love a good hot tub. I'm not advocating for a world in which, like, no one has a hot tub. I want a world in which everyone has access to a hot tub. And right now I live in a collective home where there's a hot tub that we can all share. Now it's broken, so we all have to share getting it fixed. But, you know, that to me, the idea is how do we identify these things that give us pleasure and and release and that are a balm to our systems and that make life worth living? How do we make that available to everyone?
0: So do you think you can truly experience pleasure then individually? Is there a certain, is it a different kind of pleasure when it's a collective pleasure?
4: Mm, I love that. I mean, I think you absolutely can experience individually. And I think a lot of people do that. And it's one of the things I've been looking at. And I do a bunch of social justice work. And what I see happen a lot is people work themselves to the bone. And then they go off as individuals and have a sabbatical and take a break, take a vacation and do individual things to just nourish themselves and then try to recover, you know, come back into movement. Like, okay, I'm well-rested. But if you come back in and it's like, I, I, you know, I did this. I took a sabbatical in 2012 and I came back, like I'm restored. I'm renewed. I feel amazing. But I was coming back into a space where no one else had taken a break. Everyone else was so exhausted and we don't even have a practice in place to be like, let's stagger this. Let's make sure that we're working, but that we're, really sharing the load to make sure everyone gets a break. And so one of the things I think about is how do we structure society so we're not even in the cycle of having to burn ourselves out completely and then step away as individuals and then come back? What would it look like to structure our movements so that they felt good and that they were sustaining the people who were a part of them? And that question kind of led me into this study, which is like, well, what are the things that do feel good? (laughs) What can we learn from that? And so much is, You have to be able to feel. A lot of us are just numbing. We're numbing our way through our entire lives. And we think that that's the best we can get is like work hard, be miserable, come home, numb yourself out, go to sleep, next day do it again. And what I'm positing is we have to begin to practice the kind of lives and pleasure and communities that we want to create so that we get that into our system and we won't settle for anything less.
0: Earlier you were saying that we only connect through suffering and I want to ask you a couple of questions about that. First of all, Can we connect through suffering in the same way that we can connect through pleasure, through happiness?
4: I mean, I think there's so many things that can bond us. I, in this past year, have gone through losing a number of people, and actually just last night was at the memorial services for a member of my community, Mama Lila Cabell, long-term member of the community, and it was incredible to connect with all the people who were grieving for her And then inside that moment, I was very aware that, like, we're grieving for this person who brought a ton of pleasure to all of our lives. She was a vibrant human being. She was always smiling. Even when she was working so hard, you got the sense that she felt blessed by the work that she was doing and that she was enjoying it. And she is another model for me, right? So it's like in that moment of suffering and grief, even in that moment, what we're really longing for and what we're Grieving for is something that brought us great pleasure and joy. So I don't think the two things are totally disconnected. And I don't think they should be disconnected. But what I often see happen is great culminations where it's like this person has been shot, this um, attack has happened to our, our community, this funding has been cut, and in that moment we come together and we are complaining and we are really, um, really continuously enforcing that our power belongs to someone else, and that we have to demand back from them our joy, our equity, our, you know, and that's the cycle that I want to break. For me, I want us to come together around the things that actually bring us joy, make us feel powerful, make us have a sense of abundance together. And then I want us to grow from that place, deepen from that place, understand that what we pay attention to grows. So if we grow, if we pay attention all the time to the things that make us suffer and the things that make us feel powerless, I think that's what we grow is a sense of there's nothing I can do. I can only grind in this way. I'll never get to experience joy in my lifetime. And I'm a testament to the fact that another way is possible, (laughs) right? Like, I'm like, oh, I know what it is to be in communities that are centering themselves around loving, caring for each other, and lifting each other up. And those movements are having a huge impact in Black Liberation work right now. Do you you see that
0: (laughs) reinforced in the kind of media coverage we see where they talk about, The resilience of a town after a tornado, or you hear people like here in Chicago, if there's a big snowstorm, you'll hear people in the media, the news anchors saying, oh, it's so great when there's a huge snowstorm because you see how much people support each other by getting out of each other's way on the sidewalk or helping digging out of the snow or whatever the case is. Do you think the media – what do you think the impact is of the media – constantly celebrating the resilience after disasters and the and the shared suffering of the public
4: Mm -hmm. you know i always think that one of the the sad things in the in the media is that resilience gets told as an individual story and that resilience are told as like one act one small act that someone's doing for another person but often and you know i live in detroit Often that narrative of resilience is used to avoid actually coming through and providing support and resources to people. Um, But it's interesting you mention that because the story I see much more often in the media is the story of our suffering and the violence that we're doing to each other, and um, you know what I think of as the bad news or the crisis news. And I find that most of the people in my life listening to the news, especially these past few years, is so much more traumatizing and damaging. Um, than it is informative, exciting, um, invigorating, making you feel proud to be a human or alive. And it's one of the things I actually pay attention to is like, what are the stories that we are co-creating and what are the stories we're telling? Are we telling stories of our own victory and are we telling stories of the ways that we're supporting each other? And in those moments after the storm, you know, I, I look at like Puerto Rico and think about New Orleans, I think about the places I've been. It's that combination of, great suffering, and great recovery, recovering from harm. And I think that pleasure is one of the things that helps make us truly resilient, right? Not just rescuing and covering the ground that we should have covered by those elected officials and people that we have invested in to support us, but we're just covering that ground survival. I think we push past that into thriving when we're able to find humor and connection and community in those spaces
0: this is why i loved your book uh so you write uh pleasure activists seek to understand and learn from the politics and power dynamics inside of everything that makes us feel good this includes sex and the erotic drugs fashion humor passion work uh connection reading cooking and our eating music and other arts and so much more why are politics that make us feel good necessarily good politics can't People who are bad people be, feel good about bad things, and then that creates bad <laughs> politics.
4: <laughs> yes, Chuck, work it. I see you working around in this question. I mean, I would say this. I feel like I made a note in the beginning about a word about excess, because I think that actually everyone does deserve to feel good, but I think that a lot of when you talk about like bad people, you know, I think a lot of times bad people are folks who have gotten twisted like their relationship with other humans or their relationship with the planet has gotten twisted. They believe they can take without having to return, without having to give this mutuality and being able to sense what is enough that actually brings pleasure, right? If you're never satisfied, you're not actually getting pleasure. You're going through the motions. You might be pleasing someone else, but you're not actually experiencing that for yourself. And that's a lot of the cycle I want to break. But I also think there's a huge section in the book about, sex in this Me Too era. And a lot of that was written because it's like, so what do we do about the fact that nearly half of the species has been socialized to engage in bad behavior when it comes to intimate relationships? And it's like, you know, a lot of the move over the past few decades about my lifetime has been desexualize everything, desexualize the workplace, make more rules, shut down the energy. And I find that I don't see that work very often. What I see is stuff gets repressed And then it comes out in other ways, often in harmful ways. And so one of the things I'm really looking at is how do we create the processes and structures and begin to really practice them so that bad behavior gets shut down without having to dispose of human beings? We understand, like, if you're swimming in the water of toxic masculinity and you become a toxic masculine person, then how do we rescue you from that water, right? Right. Well, I think the way you do it is by beginning to practice something else. Instead of saying you should never, ever, ever feel attracted to anyone, it's more like you need to learn how to accurately communicate around attraction. You need to understand how to hear a no or a boundary, how to tell if someone's not interested, um, and how to continue the relationship. I think that happens so often where it's like you express attraction and someone's not into you, and then it's like the relationship has to be over. Instead of just being like, hey, I'm not interested there's so many human beings, keep it moving, right? We can be friends, there might be another option. And I think because masculinity has gotten so toxified, any form of rejection can lead to violence. Um, and that, again, it's like that when you think about bad behavior, I'm like, okay, it's the behavior, it's the harm that we wanna remove. And there's a teacher, Miriam Cabo, who is a mediator. and She does a ton of work around conflict transformation. Um, we had her as a guest on the podcast I do with my sister, How to, How to Survive the End of the World last year. And she talked about like the focus has to be on reducing the harm and ending the harm rather than um, pathologizing human beings and saying this person is bad and, and can never be saved. Because I'm like, we're all in the system. There's a ton of us who have been harmed inside the system. There's a ton of responses and distortions to our humanity that have emerged from that. Now it's time to start to reclaim, to say, what do we want to raise up in our children? What do we want Every human being to feel that they have access to, and how do we design a world that is centered around what feels good to as many of us as possible?
0: Adrian, you write that your intention is to get the reader to recognize that pleasure is a measure of freedom. How is pleasure mm-hmm. a measure of freedom?
4: You know, I think of it in a very tangible way. Like I think about my own body, my own experience. I'm a black woman, I'm a fat woman, I'm a queer woman. So I've got these sort of three strikes or strikes against me in terms of how am I supposed to access pleasure? I also wear glasses. Okay, so I've got kind of all the things that I'm like, I don't fit into any pornographic images I ever saw. I don't fit into what was ever presented on a magazine as a sexy person or someone desiring uh, desirable. And then on top of that, we have these waves of oppression that are like you. Um, you're supposed to be in service, right? So the role of a woman, in a lot of ways, what I was trained up to do is to please a man, right? Every magazine cover, here's the 30 ways to give the best blowjob that a man could have. There's no comparative article. that are like, and here's the 30 ways for men that you can actually please your woman. None of that was what I grew up in, right? And then being black, it's like your role is to be in service. You are an inferior person in this country. And you keep adding to that as a queer person, what, the way you want to make love is illegal. It is um, an abom- abomination, right? If so you add, add, add all these different oppressions, then for me to actually wake up in my house, have an incredible bath, have an incredible orgasm, love my body and love my life, to me, it's a measure of every single way that I have rejected that socialization, rejected um, the myth of white supremacy Rejected the myth of some norm body that doesn't look like mine, and actually reclaimed the truth, which is I'm a miraculous human being, and I'm wired for pleasure, and I deserve to feel amazing. And when I'm happy, it's good for everyone else. It really is. And so that's one of the, you know, for me, I look at it in my life that way. And then I look at things like the Kumbahi River statement, which posits the idea that if Black women are free, everyone else would ne- necessarily be free because of the structures of this country. And I love that idea that as applied to pleasure, if every black woman, if every fat woman, if every non-binary person, if every trans person, if every person with a disability, if I knew that all of us had access to total pleasure, to feeling good in our lives, it would mean that our entire society has structured in a way that now abundance was available for all of us. And that's what I'm fighting for.
0: You write that many people are orienting toward and around radical pleasure in this political moment. Why? What about this particular political moment? What about it is leading many people to orient toward radical pleasure? Is this in reaction to what we're seeing as like a kind of an epidemic of depression?
4: I mean, I think that right now there's a very, um, for me and the communities I'm in, there's a sense of like we have to hold each other tight through this moment. Um, And I think we have to make sure that we feel good and that we stay connected to what feels good, because this is a really horrific time. Having a racist white supremacist president um, who's also um, heavy on misogyny in office um, and having an administration that's surrounding and supporting that, having the Republican party who won't really ever pull themselves away from him, um, being in this political moment and such a shameful moment for the country in terms of what's happening internally, but also how the rest of the world views us. Um, It could be easy to become depressed and to feel like nothing matters or all the work that we've been winning on and making advancements on is being pushed back. And I take great um, inspiration from indigenous communities, right? Because I'm like, well, this time is so hard, but then it's nothing compared to what indigenous communities have had to survive and live through on this land. And one of the interviews I have in the book is with Dallas Goldshooth, who's part of the Indigenous Environmental Network and was a major organizer at Standing Rock. And I interviewed him because all the videos that he was posting throughout that time, he was posting such informative stuff. He was also posting hilarious videos and pictures of folks flooding and having a great time and showing what the community felt like and that they were actually in a lot of pleasure and joy with each other as they, and that was one of the ways that they were able to sustain themselves through winter in this freezing cold setting. So to me, I'm like, oh, it's, it's actually a fuel. It's a, another kind of nourishment that we need. I also think there's a way that's like our bodies are the thing we have, right? Like everything else will come and go, but our bodies are the space that we have. And so mm-hmm. learning how to, how to actually redirect your attention and redirect the experience of your life from feeling crappy and overwhelmed and depressed feeling content and joyful and satisfied to me is a freedom, right? I don't tune into what the president is doing and saying all the time. I know most of it is not even true. And I'm experiencing a huge amount of contentment and liberation in my life. And I'm really focused on and supporting movements that are doing work that makes me feel content and satisfied. I love supporting the movement for Black Lives. I love supporting the majority. I love supporting BYP 100. I love that they are in the struggle, on the front lines, but dancing with each other, singing with each other, making Black joy mixtapes. Like when we make decisions, we put on 90s R&B and we dance together. Right? It's like this is an important time to be cultivating Black joy in the face of oppression and remembering that we're not alive to suffer, to fight, to struggle. We're alive to love each other, to build community, to evolve.
0: How can pleasure activism, and I know that you kind of touched on that on this in your last answer, but how can pleasure activism yeah. better prepare us for the changes we're already facing on a warming planet? How can it help us better prepare us for climate change?
4: That's amazing. You know, I, I really think that, um, I don't know about you, but for me, when I really look at the climate report, it's easy to get really overwhelmed. Like, why go on? You know, why continue? And one of the things that inspires me is that, I come from a lineage of people who, you know, lived through slavery. They're the people who survived slavery and four generations into slavery, there was no end in sight. And it felt like this is what it's going to be. There's no reason to hope. And those folks still found love, found marriage, ran away together, you know, raised children together, taught those babies how to read, made sure they laughed. Like you keep going. You can't actually foresee the whole future. And, I think preparing for apocalypse means preparing for deeper intimacy. Like, I think a lot of individualism is what capitalism is all about, is everyone has to have their own. And when everyone has their own, there's actually not enough for everyone, right? There starts to be this accumulation of greed. I think the kind of collectivism we need is going to rely on us being able to be in authentic intimacy, right? I have to actually be able to say, Chuck, how are you feeling? And for you to be honest about it. And that requires intimacy. For a lot of people, telling the truth about how they feel in in real time is harder than laying down and having sex with someone. And I think the things are so connected. I'm like, what does it mean to get naked, truly naked? What does it mean to actually be seen? What does it mean to actually say, I want this. I don't want that. Don't touch me like this. I'm triggered right now. This is what's happening, right? And I think there's not enough people right now who can just feel and express their feelings in real time, much less move towards pleasure. But I think that the, the future that I'm thinking of, I'm like, if we're all, even if it's just like, look, we're on the road, you know, <laughs> like we're trying to find water, we're trying to do other stuff. I want to be with people who I can trust to feel their feelings and with people who will crack some jokes and make it a good time.
0: Well, I really, I really loved your book. We are speaking with social justice facilitator focused on black liberation, emergent strategist, doula, healer, anti-extraordinaire, and ple- pleasure activist, Adrienne Marie Brown. She is author of Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good. Just a couple more questions for you. And I wanted to reintroduce you there because this is going to be completely off topic from everything else, kind of, that we've been discussing. But I found this fascinating. You write, All organizing is science fiction, that we are shaping the future we long for and have not yet experienced. How is organizing, how is activism viewed differently? when we see it as science fiction?
4: Yay. I love this question. Um, Yeah. So a few years ago, Walida Imarisha and I put out the book Octavia's Brood, And this was one of the core things that we realized as we were pulling it together. It's like, Oh, we think of activism as this like very serious engagement. You know, you read Marx once a year, you watch Malcolm X, you know, like you do very serious things. You think serious thoughts and, um, but what's actually happening is this, you know, when you're an activist or an organizer, you're saying, I am going to take responsibility for shaping the future. And when I'm like, oh, well, shaping the future, now you're talking about science fictional behavior. It's answering the question, like, what if this was to happen? Or if this goes on, what will happen? And to me, it all gets much more exciting when you think we are actually in this imagination battle that we live inside a world that someone else imagined was going to be correct. They imagined white supremacy was going to be the way. They imagine that Black people were terrifying. They imagine that women were inferior. But it's all imagination. It's not true. And if we want to have a different world, we have to imagine something else. And I love that the work of organizing actually matters more if it's rooted in vision. So one of the things that I do and one of the things that we have done many times, I actually just came back from doing a series of workshops in Northern Ireland. we do these workshops where we ask people, what is the world that you actually want to, to exist in, that you want to create for future generations, and how will we know when we've achieved that world, when we're actually living in it? And so often the answers to that are not um, everyone will be driving a green car, but it's about how we will feel, that we'll feel free, that we'll feel safe, we'll feel that our children could go out and be in the street, and we know that there's a million people with their eyes on them, loving them, caring for them, not trying to turn them into consumers, but trying to focus on how do they grow and be the best that they can be. And Gloria Anzaldua is a teacher in our lineage, and she said that nothing happens in the real world unless it first happens in the images in our head. And so a lot of what we're doing with Octavia's Food, a lot of what we're doing with the science fiction and visionary fiction work, you know, really thinking... What are the stories we tell over and over again that reinforce the current power dynamics? What are the new stories we have to tell if we want to remind people that they're actually born free and that freedom is a given. They're born to feel pleasure. Pleasure is a given. We're born to be in community and interdependent. Individuality is a myth. So that's just (laughs) those things.
0: One last question for you. We've been speaking with author Adrienne Marie Brown. She is the author of Pleasure Activism. The Politics of Feeling Good. She's also the co editor of 2015's Octavia's Brood, science fiction from social justice movements and anthology of sci fi written by organizers and visionaries. You can find out more about Octavia's Brood at octaviasbrood.com. You can follow Adrienne on Twitter at Adrienne Marie, and you can find out more about Adrienne at adriennemariebrown.com. Our final question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Or our audience might hate your response. And I think that's the category that this might fall in. One of the things I was thinking about when I was reading your book and during your response about science fiction is that science fiction is always seen, not always, but it's often seen as utopian, like in the kind of Star Trek Mm -hmm. utopian world, even though it's militarized for whatever reason. But in the Star Trek utopian world, you know, it's always seen as something that's uh, unreachable. And so often when you think about activism and organization, activists and organizers are often labeled as being too utopian, being too impractical, not being pragmatic enough. What happens when activism and organizing isn't utopian?
4: You know, I think that we get, um, when it isn't utopian, I find that it's fear-driven. And fear doesn't get us where we want to go. It doesn't liberate us. Fear actually makes us smaller when what we need to be is growing in deep relationship with each other. Fear makes us competitive with each other. And I think once we start competing with each other, this is how we end up with some of what we have in our movements right now, which is everyone is fighting over dollars instead of fighting for freedom. Um, I'm actually in the midst of writing a piece right now about this for those in philanthropy because I'm like, I really want to completely transform how the work of organizing gets funded and how it happens. Um, But one of the things I'll say is if we, you know, when we were writing Octavia's Booth, one of our things was there's never a utopia without a dystopia that's supporting it, right? You don't get heaven without hell. You know, you don't get the the white tower without a bunch of people who are actually building and supporting and and working that. It's one of the binaries that we hope to bust out of. How do we create something that's not utopian and it's also not dystopian, but it's a future that is compelling and that we actually want to be a part of and work inside of, right? I always say I'm not really that interested in the utopian version of things because I'm a problem solver. I'm a Virgo oldest child. I like figuring stuff out. But I want to be in a collective or community of people that are like, we all take responsibility for the future. We're all going to figure it out together. That's what I'm up to.
0: Adrienne, I really, really enjoyed your book, and I cannot thank you enough for the conversation that we're having this morning. We have been speaking with author and pleasure activist Adrienne Marie Brown. She wrote the book, Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good. You can find out more about uh, Adrienne at her website, net, and you can follow her on Twitter at marie. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. I really, really appreciate it.
4: Thanks, Jack. Have a really good one. And tell all your folks out there to
0: have a great day. No, thank you very much, Adrienne.
3: You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.
1: Listening to This Is Hell, Manufacturing Descent from 1996. I'm Lindsay, and I just played an interview from Adrian Marie Brown on pleasure activism, doing what feels good to change the world. I think that's a pretty good plan. I too want to live in a world where everyone has access to a hot tub. So up next, we have the question from Hal. And then I'm also going to bring on Jeffrey Dorshin. Thanks for uh, messaging me about my microphone, not broadcasting any sound. <laughs> so Yeah, let's see here. We have, uh, the question from Hal is, what are you trying to ban from schools? What are you trying to ban from schools? I guess I get to pick the answer this week, and I'm, you know, I think if anybody has the answer compulsion, I just don't think we should make kids go to school. I think that makes kids really resent school, you know? I think they would I think a lot of people would like school if you could actually choose to go learn what you want. But whatever, that's just me. Let's see what our listeners said. So here on our Facebook page, what would you ban from schools? What are you trying to ban from schools? Kim Phyllis says mystery meat from the cafeteria. Oh, great, great response. I think we should ban mystery meat from a lot of places. Um. Tyler R says, sound, vision, and touch, smelling and tasting only. Okay, that one's going to be hard to beat. That was pretty good. (laughs) Um, I think, yeah, if you don't have to see or hear or like go and they just, I don't know how that would look, but I like the idea of learning through only your your sense of smell and your taste. Anyways, Margot says, Students. I guess that was my answer too. Uh, David R says, "Independent thought. What are you trying to ban from schools?" <laughs> okay. I mean, I think they they already do try and do that. Um, Jessica A, Jessica Ann B says, "Attendance." C- I concur. Uh, Larry M says, "Anything that recognizes the truth in our history and culture." Okay. <laughs> Um, Lisa B says, crappy racist textbooks. I think we can all agree on that. Um, Louis B says, indoctrinating sexuality to kindergarteners. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I hope that's, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not, I don't have any uh, thing to say on the sexuality of kindergarteners today neil c says double secret probation (laughs) kenneth g says students that don't read the effing syllabus (laughs) well i love a good syllabus but personally but my recommendation is maybe if you like color code them make them a little bit more visually interesting your students you know might like that On to the Twitter, we still got a number of responses, so I'm going to try and do this quick. Let's see. Download history says administrators. I agree. (laughs) Uh, Elaine at Alan Singh says parents. Yeah, I I was a teacher for a semester online and I'd have to agree with that one. (laughs) Hypocrite reader says graven images. Hales at 20 yards of linen (laughs) says axe body spray okay that that one's like a really good one too and that one and the smell and taste those are those are kind of tied for me right now you might see there's a theme that i'm i'm interested in these smell (laughs) and sensation responses anyways it's taurus season but uh, at eat fart 69 says, the Pledge of Allegiance. Oh, totally. That should have been gone years ago. Oh, my gosh. Steven, think of how much time is wasted every single day, every single student. What? 30 seconds, a minute of their life every single day? It all adds up. Anyways. Stephen A. S- at Stephen Shack says, Oklahoma. <laughs> they do have some pretty interesting history, but I think maybe the people should know. Kevin O says, gym. Yeah, totally. Um, locker rooms, good. those should be a thing in the past. Uh, at Cayman Rider RX5 says, tests. Yeah, that too. Years ago should have been gone. My cat gave me a nosebleed says, the Prussian industrial education model. Uh, okay, Jeff H says, boring teachers. And Megathrust Earthquake says tater tots. Okay. Um, you know, I like I said, I really like those 2 Um Let me I I'm gonna have to go with AGS body spray on that because it's just actually really bad for people. Those synthetic fragrances, you shouldn't be putting them on your body, you shouldn't be putting them on your pores, you shouldn't be breathing them in. So <laughs> ban it from schools ban it from the country make it illegal do what we need to do anyways (laughs) thank you for your response that was at 20 yards of linen hails uh go ahead and email us for your choice of this is Hell merchandise uh what do you call it swag gear i don't know all right that's enough for me i think uh we're ready here to hear our moment of truth. Jeffrey Dorshan puts on his tragic comedy mask. Let me get his sound up. I'm messing up the sound today, so I've gotta be very careful here with this one. Jeff Dorshan. One,
0: two, you know what to do! There. One more time. <laughs>
5: moment moment of the moment of tragedy plus time it was Pesach time it was easter time it was ramadan time We were grateful for the hand of the Lord freeing us from bondage. We were grateful for the crucifixion, resurrection, transfiguration, and ascension of his son Jesus. We were grateful for the revelation of the Quran to his prophet Muhammad. We ate the bread of affliction. We ate chocolate. We ate nothing during the day. We symbolized the sorrows of slavery and the joys of freedom with objects on a plate. We symbolized rebirth by painting an egg. We symbolized our submission, merit, and purification through abstention. We were all going directly to the shul. We were all going directly to church. We were all going directly to the mosque. Within the Abrahamic faiths, we were all killing each other. And outside the Abrahamic faiths, we were also killing each other. Everyone was killing each other. It was the international pastime. Naturally people were, at the same time, helping and healing each other, learning from and teaching one another, celebrating and entertaining each other. This world of ours is a mixed bag of things that make us suffer, things that leave us alone, and things that give us pleasure and sustenance. Eh, not a huge revelation. Every once in a while, one aspect or another, suffering or non-suffering, takes precedence in our field of focus. A remark has been made that black people in the US have historically tended to turn suffering into music and comedy and that jews have a tend <clears throat> that jews have had a tendency to turn suffering into mostly comedy and perhaps a more cloying version of music genres that aren't as different from suffering itself as their comedy is sorry jews your musical sadness is more depressing than empowering or sustaining but your comedy measures up I'm sorry, I should say our comedy because I am, for all pragmatic purposes, a Jew. I also have an ex-sister-in-law who's black, but you can't really tell by looking at me. I basically pass as a Caucasian Jew pretty much full time. So in the midst of the religious festivities and laments in the arena of Abrahamic faiths and the non-Abrahamic world engaged in their own misery and non-misery, tragedy befell the English-speaking world. I speak of course, of the death of Gilbert Gottfried. Oh, Gilbert, you were inarguably funny. Your voice, it was so shrieky and East Coast. Your dorky walk and gestures, they were so very studied, yet came off as spontaneous. You were the voice of a cartoon parrot. You were the voice of the mascot of an insurance company, a duck, in their commercials. You might remember, if you are as old as dirt, that Gilbert was fired unceremoniously although why anyone would expect a firing ceremony has never been made clear for tweeting tsunami jokes within 12 hours of the destruction of the Fukushima nuclear plant. To be fair to the company that fired him, first responders were still looking for bodies while Gilbert was tweeting his jokes. So there's that. But who wants to be fair to an insurance company, and as Gilbert pointed out, If you wait till later, does that make you a good person all of a sudden? Like, I won't tell jokes now. Okay, now it's been a couple months. Fuck those people who died. Does tragedy plus time equal comedy? I have to admit to having found Jeffrey Epstein jokes funny immediately. I wish I could think of one now. You may object that Epstein was an unlikable creep, but Gilbert wasn't. He was lovable, and yet it is a droll thought that one minute he was screeching his tiny Jewish bird lungs out, and the next he was just a flaccid corpse, just lying there, the spastic spirit having disappeared from his scrawny, freakish little body. I mean, that's funny. I'm still sad he's gone. I won't get to hear him roast W. Kamau Bell or Tignataro Notaro someday, which would be hilarious. Will Tig or W. Kamau ever submit to a comedy roasting? I wouldn't hold your breath, because holding your breath plus time equals tragedy. It's possible that tragedy plus time really does equal comedy. Say your house burns down. It's a tragedy. Your spouse and children are burnt alive in the fire. It's tragic. You're devastated. Then Gilbert Gottfried comes over to you and tells a bunch of hilarious jokes about ass-fucking. Whether you laugh or not is besides the point. The fact is, time passed while Gilbert was telling his jokes, and by the principle of tragedy plus time, you are that much closer to comedy after Gilbert's jokes than you were before. And that is why passing time is the international pastime. Gilbert Gottfried made it up to the Japanese by killing it at the Friars Club roast of George Takei, Mr. Sulu, from the original Star Trek series, international Japanese gay icon, about three years before Fukushima. How can you really make up? Can you really make up for a transgression three years before you commit it? I believe so, because transgression plus time travel equals forgiveness. That's a known fact about time and how to fold it. Gilbert told a seemingly endless stream of jokes about ass-fucking during his roast of George Takei. It was indisputably funny. It was almost as funny as his telling of the aristocrat's joke three weeks after the 9-11 World Trade Center massacre. If you don't know about that, what exactly do you do with your lives? Watching documentaries about notorious jokes comedians tell each other is the international pastime don't you consider yourselves part of the international community because you are whether you know it or not Gilbert will be remembered in comedy history which is regular history plus time wait history is always something plus time I think Herodotus said that it didn't get a laugh back then either sometimes adding time to something doesn't make it comedy just makes it take longer this has been the moment of truth Good day. All right. And thank you, Lindsay. And your mic is off.
1: (laughs) I'm trying to figure out if I'm supposed to end the show or if I'm supposed to come in here one more time and say you've been listening to This Is Hell. That was Jeff Dorshan with the moment of truth. I really enjoyed that. Uh, Holding your breath plus time is tragedy. Tragedy. You got to Breathing is important. I think that's very important to say. So, again, thanks for listening to This Is Hell, WNUR 89.3, Chicago Sound Experiment, Rogers Park, Chicago. All right. Have a good day. My demon is on my butt.
2: Uh. My
5: demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. Uh-huh. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.